helping the acquisition workforce maintain a decisive edge. This is the Defense Acquisition University Podcast. Welcome to DAU Podcast. I'm Anthony Rotolo, continuing today with our series about the Joint Acquisition Task Force, or JADIF, for coronavirus. With me for today's discussion is Ms. Roxanne Banks, Deputy Director of Acquisition J7 for the Defense Logistics Agency, DLA. She is responsible for the development, application, and oversight of DLA acquisition policy, plans, programs, functional systems, and operations for the annual agency acquisition program exceeding $40 billion. I'm also joined by Mr. David Kless, who is the Executive Director for Operations J31 in DLA's Logistics Operations J3. In this role, he's responsible for coordinating and synchronizing day-to-day current operations of DLA's worldwide logistics, acquisition, and technical support services in support of combatant commands, CCMD, military services, federal, state, and civil agencies, and foreign governments. Ms. Banks, Mr. Kless, welcome. Thanks, Anthony. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Thank you, Anthony. This is a great opportunity to, again, tell the story. And what a story. This is a you know, very dramatic story. Not to be quote-unquote dramatic, but you had a lot to do in a short time frame. I have to imagine there were daunting challenges, and I'd like you to tell that story. How did DLA, and you both in particular, become a part of this team, the JADIF team? So basically, I had been participating along with Dave on some of our discussions with our director here at DLA. And as things were ramping up, I think some of this started back in like the January, February timeframe, where we were getting some signals from various places of the coming demands and how we were going to be posturing ourselves. And so we had been spending a lot of time with our director getting plans together, understanding what our role was going to be. And then we got notice that Miss Lord was standing up the JADF cell. And because it was linked to acquisition, I was the natural person to step forward and be a representative to DLA and understand how our role would play into the greater JADF picture. As Roxanne said, early on in any effort like this, it's common practice for DLA to embed ourselves with the customer, with organizations, and in this case, as part of the supply chain task force and the JADF, it was a natural fit for us and our acquisition expertise, independent of military or federal agencies, to be a part of that acquisition task force team. As Roxanne mentioned, the ramp up from initial questions to actual requirements was very quick. And it was clear that this was not a one to two week effort, but something that was going to require months. And as we've seen now, almost and going past a year before this is ever done. So again, it was a natural fit for DLA to fit right in to the JADF organization. Yeah, I want to explore that fit that you're describing. If I can ask you kind of in kind of the big macro picture, but also on a smaller level, 
What were your roles within the JADF and where did DLA fit into that broader interagency picture? Uh, Ms. Banks, first. Sure. Thank you. So I would say that we've been doing this for quite some time. Interagency agreements has been in our fabric of what we do at DLA. And so it's been, as Dave said earlier, it's a natural fit for us. And so as we've moved forward with working through this, I think part of my role with the JADF was explaining the process that we already had in place. And I think the greater purpose of the JADF was to coordinate requirements as they were coming to DOD. And really, it was really more about ensuring we weren't stepping on each other. And what I mean by that is perhaps the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, might decide to move forward with their own buys. And in effect, we would then be competing for the same sources. So that's what we really wanted to avoid was to centralize our buying into a single existing contract that we had in place. And that just made it more natural to come to DLA. So really a lot of coordination, ensuring that you're not eclipsing each other's mission or duplicating efforts or really in any kind of conflict. Like you said, you could have been targeting the same vendors for the same thing. That's right. And and it was even more critical as time went on because of the scarcity of the items. There's a number of factors that played into that. For one, you had companies that were in danger of shutting down, and a lot of them did shut down. So this was equally important because we needed to ensure that we were coordinating all our efforts. DLA has a number of contracts that were already in place, and if the other services were looking to award their own contracts, we would potentially be competing for the same sources. And as time went on, the market became more and more constrained for a number of reasons. Of course, obviously, the spread of the pandemic was closing some businesses. Some were having to furlough employees. It was just having an enormous impact on production and manufacturing overall. So it was it was very important for us to single up the demand and focus it into a single contract focus. And so my role in the whole JADF process was to coordinate the capabilities of our DLA troop support, in particular, our medical supply chain and our clothing and textile supply chains. They were principal in helping to support the effort going forward. What did that translate into? I'm, I'm hearing about textiles. Was this specific kinds of PPE or gowns or certain kinds of manufacture? I think that's a key point is when people think PPE, they think medical. So I think that's a good point and where we in the acquisition experience helped the JADA as they were standing up and trying to identify what was a huge gap between supply and demand. So everyone was well aware there was a shortage. And in any event like this crisis, everyone steps out quickly to try to do what they can. But what that often leads to, and we've seen this in previous, matter of fact, we saw it several years ago in the Ebola crisis, a similar situation where everyone was trying to do this goodness, but we were competing against each other and the same suppliers. To Roxanne's point, where DLA really provided value is it wasn't only our medical supply chain, but you know, there was clothing and textile companies, as she mentioned, that were that outside of this pandemic is a fragile supply chain 
anyway. And so a lot of those companies were affected by the pandemic and had to close. So leveraging and helping those small businesses almost transform their company into helping support PPE was another alternative source to trying to bridge that gap between supply and demand. Yeah, this is really reminiscent of kind of that parallel to stories of World War II, where you just harness industry and all of a sudden our manufacturing base is producing things that might have been out of their norm, but for a special purpose to support a war effort. In this case, we had a different kind of a war effort fighting this invisible enemy, as it's sometimes referred to, but this coronavirus challenge. So that's a really compelling part of the story is this transforming and adaptation of these manufacturers. Yeah, that's right, Anthony. And so we had a number of contracts that were in place in, in the variety of our supply chains. And as we worked forward to supply PPE, I think there is a natural inclination that we would go to our medical supply chain. But it was a lot more than that. We had a number of other contracts that were in scope where, that we could use to support the PPE demand. And so we went to other contracts, such as our construction and equipment supply chain that had some contracts in place that could supply some of the other PPE. And then we had our medical supply chain where we used to fulfill PPE requirements. And finally, we also used our clothing and textiles supply chain. And in that particular supply chain, we acquired gowns, medical gowns. And so that brought in another dynamic into the contracting process. Uh, whenever you're dealing with textiles, the Department of Defense is bound by the Berry Amendment. And what that means is every element of that material, when a textile is involved, is required to be domestically sourced. So if we're talking like cotton, everything down to the cotton seed needs to be produced in the United States. So having those requirements and those regulatory processes in place made it a, an, another greater challenge for us to fulfill. Because in the past, as we've worked through these demands, we've relied on offshore vendors when we were not able to source it domestically. Right. You're in a crisis and you have these constraints within which you find yourself working that may be fine during normal times, but now present a special challenge when, as you said, down to the cotton seed, it has to be domestically sourced. That's a nuance I don't think many people are aware of. That's right. And so we moved forward with also working through other requirements such as how can we expand the industrial base? If we're in a situation where we're relying in some cases for our medical supply items or PPE and having to go to offshore sources, how can we work in the future to develop our domestic industrial base? And so that's what we did with one particular PPE buy. And in particular, that was a gown. And we used our clothing and textile supply chain to procure additional gowns. And what that entailed was our going with an open requirement, a full and open competition to develop additional sources out there that could supply medical gowns. And so we went through an entire process. Uh, we met with industry. In fact, we had DAU's help in working through the other challenges, oh, by the way, of having to work remotely 
everybody is teleworking in a teleworking environment. And so it was a great challenge to pull this all together, but we attracted over 600 sources in a two-day session talking through the requirements of PPE and other items and focusing in, in particular on a gowns procurement for reusable and disposable gowns. And so it was a, a really good opportunity for us to hear the concerns of industry, how our approach was working with their challenges. We took some of their recommendations and incorporated them into the overall solicitation and moved forward with awards that produced 15 different sources that the majority of them were even small businesses. So that was a great news story for us to help develop areas and companies, have them develop additional uh, changing manufacturing lines to produce gowns for this uh, pandemic. Yeah, and those are some amazing themes that come out of this. It's just what it has done to improve and strengthen our domestic manufacturing base, which is so important to national security. And what other ways have you found to expand the supply chain to provide PPE? Well, during the April timeframe, DLA used a rapid prototype for advanced distributed manufacturing to produce more than 11,000 face shields for New York City first responders. And we executed this contract award and delivery in less than two weeks. In the same month, DLA awarded another contract for 60 critical care decontamination systems that also had uh, some elements of services to it in support of uh, HHS. And by June of 2020, all 60 CCDSs were delivered. Each unit can sterilize up to 80,000 N95 respirator masks per day, uh, then extending the life of a single mask by 20 times. So this new technology enabled medical providers to increase the viability of a piece of critical PPE and decrease the pressure of the supply chain. So it had a time, you know, it had some time to reconstitute uh, to meet future demand. Yeah, that's a remarkable part of the story, the way that type of technology was new in itself and it took pressure off of producing more raw quantity of masks. So I really enjoy hearing these innovative stories that come out of the whole super story about coronavirus. Now, if we could pivot a moment, I, w I wanted to ask if you could discuss how you approached understanding the HHS FEMA problem sets. What prior experience working with the interagency did DLA build upon, such as a process already in place for doing interagency agreements, IAAs? Specific to your question, DLA has existing relationships with over 40 different whole of government partners, providing some level of supply or service support to those agencies um, through existing interagency agreements. So when the pandemic first hit in March and FEMA and HHS were designated as the lead, that was a natural, again, a natural fit for DLA because more with FEMA than HHS, our experience dating back to Katrina, the relationship we have with FEMA is, I mean, we are side by side with them in any disaster relief effort. So the processes were in place, the agreements were in place. There was a common understanding when a requirement came up for an item, they knew exactly 
the mechanism through mission assignments on how to pass those requirements to DLA. And DLA was already in a position to provide that support. That proved critical when they teamed with HHS because they were able, along with DLA, to help inform HHS how to institutionalize that same process on the HHS side. One common theme that we keep talking to, and I think is critical during this pandemic, is just the rate of speed. You know, Roxanne talked a little about significant requirements, significant shortfalls. It wasn't only finding available sources and significant quantities, but the speed to do that. And so, again, when the JADF was stood up and established, I would say Roxanne's role was more acquisition specific, the actual acquiring of material. My role early on was helping to inform the process in place of of when there was a requirement, what are the proper vehicles, the agreements, the interagency forms that enable those requirements to be put on contract and executed again in a timely manner to meet the speed by which those requirements had to be filled. So that proved very beneficial. There was not a need to relearn or reinvent the wheel. It was just more through communication and information that we were able to provide our lessons learned over the past 10 plus years and avoid that learning process. I think I would add that what we do well is leverage our contracts because we buy at scale and we have long-term agreements in place with a variety of different vendors and suppliers, and we have good working relationships with them. So from an interagency perspective, for example, you have the VA that we work with, the Veterans Administration, who often look to us to acquire their medical surge supply or pharmaceuticals. And their focus is they want to focus on their expertise, that being providing health care. And they're leveraging the capability of DLA and our ability to provide supplies in quick order at these rates of speeds that Dave mentioned and doing it at a good price. So I think that's what what DLA is really good at. Now, you mentioned you have a long history working with HHS and FEMA. So there is this language that you speak with them and this ability to to integrate. What was different about this scenario compared to past disasters? What was different? So so again, I talked about FEMA, right, and, and support during Katrina and then several years later, Superstorm Sandy, and then most recently, some of the multiple hurricanes that affected Puerto Rico and the Gulf Coast. What's different now was in those scenarios or those support efforts were isolated to a specific area. So you could leverage other areas of the country and other sources of supply targeted at that impacted area. What was different in this scenario is there was no isolation. Right. There was to start with, even before it came to the U.S., there was a global requirement. There was global competition for global commodities. And then when it came to the U.S., 
you couldn't isolate it to a couple of states. So every state was impacted to varying degrees, but yet still impacted. So, so the real difference is, is this was a stress on a global supply chain, in this case, the medical supply chain, not only amongst the United States and the nation, but the world. Significantly impacting, and where I noticed it too, was not only impacting, say, those people affected by the pandemic, but there was significant impact on Department of Defense operations, right? So, so you saw early on restricted movement, isolation of personnel. So, so that's what's different here is, is, I guess, in a nutshell, most disaster relief efforts are isolated to a specific area and you can leverage resources from non-affected areas. In this case, there was not a non-affected area. You had a demand signal that you couldn't find the supply easily anywhere because this was hitting the whole world at once. So what a challenge. And thus, the innovation and adaptation that we were describing earlier. Now, how did you help the JADF and the department learn the IAA process and expand that to other elements? So, Anthony, um, as I mentioned, right, more with FEMA than HHS, right, we... um, we had a very institutionalized relationship process with FEMA. I mean, when any disaster hits leading up to the disaster, when you can predict a, a disaster like a hurricane, I mean, we are side by side with FEMA and we have those agreements. We were able to leverage those and transfer that knowledge and those processes to HHS. So again, I would say it was normal business for us and FEMA. And so collectively between the two of us, we could, FEMA, as they were sitting there trying to help HHS solve this global problem across the nation, they were able to help inform and promote our capabilities in addition to DLA doing that. Tell us a little bit more about your relationship with your industry partners, please. Certainly. So we obviously had some great concern over their ability to perform as a pandemic ensued. And so we do have an extensive communication network in place already prior to the COVID pandemic. So DLA was able to rapidly address the demand spikes caused by the pandemic. And in large part, because the agency was able to leverage these networks, we were able to quickly assess the temperature, if you will, the health of the defense industrial base that supports DLA. We quickly initiated weekly conference calls with our key suppliers to share vital information and discuss critical financial and logistical issues created by the pandemic. And we worked pretty closely with the Defense Contract Management Agency to share information and keep close eye on those particular supply chain uh, industry providers that were critical to not only the medical supply items and PPE items, but also some of our other hardware requirements and some of the other items that support major weapon systems. We needed to ensure that we had a good understanding of how they were operating what the delays might be, what kinds of financial concerns they might be having. And we also did this in other uh, discussions with the industrial policy within OSD. They sponsored weekly meetings. And in the early days, it was almost daily meetings we were having with industry associations, hearing the concerns of industry 
and understanding how we might be able to better pivot and support their needs. So we kept a very close eye on that as we moved forward through the month. Yeah, it's very interesting, that answer, because in addition to reaching out and trying to have them supply what you need, you're also concerned for their fundamental economic health as an industry, as individual companies. It's a very special layer of concern. Absolutely. And I use the word partnership because that's exactly what it is. The defense industrial base is pivotal to our ability to support the warfighter. And without those strong relationships in place, we cannot support the warfighter. So it's important that we understand each of our concerns. Yeah, it's a partnership. It's symbiotic. And again, you find yourself in a position where you have to ensure their health and sustainment. I'll also add that in uh, late March of this year, we sent out a survey to our vendor base to collect information on their operations covering such things as facility closures, delays in contract performance, and their financial challenges. And finally, I also wanted to add that in these discussions with industrial policy and the industry associations, we had an understanding that some of our small businesses were having trouble acquiring PPE. And so we stood up a, what we call a small business corridor within our DLA Fed Mall, which is a e-commerce corridor. And we stood that up specifically for DOD small businesses so they could purchase PPE for their employees to safely perform contracts for the department. So these relationships and actions were fundamental to the resilience of the industrial base, ultimately enabling uninterrupted support to the warfighter in the nation. Yeah, and that's a very interesting insight in itself. You're asking for supplies. You're asking to be supplied with things that your supply chain needs themselves. So it's pretty ironic in that sense, and it just underscores the scope of the challenge. Everyone needed this type of PPE, for example, not just you, but you had to make sure your supply chain had it themselves in order to manufacture it for you. What a challenge. So, Anthony, just building a little on, on Roxanne's comments, right? So similar to the focus on that relationship building and sustaining that relationship to ensure that that industrial base is there post-pandemic, i just like to take that a little further just on the, the key point of communication. That same example or that same need was clear throughout this entire effort between DOD and the federal agencies. And especially, we talked a little bit about the JADF, but having that clear and direct communication of the requirements and understanding the constraints and having that common picture was key. And one thing I just wanted to talk to, and one thing that DLA does very well too, I touched on it briefly, is at the height of this effort back in June, no, back as early as March and April, at one point we had 36 DLA supply chain and acquisition personnel forward embedded with various organizations to include the JADF, to include NORTHCOM in the support of DOD's response to the nation. We still, to this day, our aviation supply chain commander is still leading what back then was the supply chain task force and now the supply chain advisory group and a staff that included both headquarters and supply chain experts forward embedded on site, which is difficult to do in this in a telework environment. And where that benefit is, it, it again goes back to 
the speed of need. And as HHS as the lead was trying to figure out problems or how to solve problems, we were there hearing the conversation, being able to offer solutions, which again, cut down the learning curve and then we're able to turn it over to Roxanne and others at the JEDF in terms of executing that requirement. So I just wanted to, to piggyback on that, that the need and the success of this effort to date is largely due to the communication and the clear understanding and the relationship between the DOD and the federal agencies in support of this nation. Yes, it's an amazing picture. The coordination, which had to happen with speed, is such a stunning thing to behold as we hear you know, what happened behind the curtain as all this supply and coordination occurred through all these acquisition tools of our trade. What are you most proud of in hindsight? So I will say I am the most proud of the acquisition workforce at DLA. Our workforce are experts in procurement and also some very strong knowledge of storage and distribution that goes with the acquisition and procurement of all our supplies. It, it is a life cycle chain network that we, you have to have that fundamental understanding of how the operations work. And our workforce is so dedicated and have this unwavering support to meet the mission of DLA. And it is just amazing watching our workforce in action. There's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of competing priorities. It's a challenge to be compliant with a variety of different regulations, pulling it all together and providing information to a variety of different entities. You have congressional members asking questions. You have industry asking lots of questions. You have other senior leaders within the department asking questions. And moving forward and providing that single answer has been a challenge, but there has never been any wavering support. It has been outstanding watching our workforce in action. Yeah, it was quite the crucible they found themselves in. The demand, the needs that had to be met under scrutiny at the same time and pressure to get it done, that really is a testament to their dedication. So, Anthony, yes. So, so similar to what Roxanne said, I couldn't be uh, more proud of, of just this entire workforce. Um, the headquarters, the MSCs, you know, what's interesting about this pandemic, if interesting is the right word. So, you know, in, in my scope of responsibility, not only do I have to worry about operations associated with support to this pandemic, but, you know, the world didn't stop. So while this is all going on, right, we're still, we DLA, a global organization, are still around the globe supporting our warfighters and our customers performing operations and supporting the combatant commanders, the military services. So that didn't stop. So I still today, as we continue to operate, have to balance the responsibility of social distancing, of maximum telework. I've got dedicated people that really don't operate on a eight-hour clock. Their day goes much longer. And in a teleworking environment, they have to do it in an environment that isn't normal. How do you do that virtually? And now add the compounded problem of 
They also have to continue to parent. So it's that balance of doing your job and the responsibility of being a parent, having to educate your children. How do you balance that? And still, what amazes me at the end of the day, everything Roxanne mentioned still gets done. It gets done in a time frame that we don't get to set, we just respond to. And then the other part of that workforce that doesn't have the ability to telework, right? Those people that are working side by side with the military services in our organic industrial depots, those workers that are out there making sure that as orders come in, the deliveries are being sent out and people around the world have what they need when they need. You know, we just got done with Thanksgiving and despite all the hard work that our troop support supply chain is doing to support this pandemic, there was still a requirement to provide all those Thanksgiving meals to all uh, military personnel around the world. And it got done. So that is probably the most rewarding part. Yes, it's rewarding to see DOD and DLA support the nation. But what's more amazing is seeing the people that are doing it and what they have to balance. It's really true. And not just balance. It's like you said, it's a, a blend of work concerns, domestic concerns, family things all coming together, all have priority, but you're all in this mostly home environment for many of these workers. And yes, as you said, we have some people who are still in the field who had a different set of concerns, but all kept going under these conditions. This has been a terrific conversation. My guests today have been Ms. Roxanne Banks and Mr. David Kless, both of DLA. I want to thank you both for being with us. Thanks, Anthony. I really had a great time today. Thank you. Anthony, thank you very much for the opportunity and, and for allowing us a couple minutes just to tell our story. Yes, I appreciate your being able to tell that story. Thank you again. Thank you for listening. For more resources, visit the Defense Acquisition University online at dau.edu.